What I've always loved about backroom Shakespeare is not only the approach to Shakespeare, which is that it's fun and immediate and urgent and present, um, but Samuel, particularly in your books, but also in the work of backroom Shakespeare on stage, you explain it, you contextualize Shakespeare in such an urgent and important way. And these classes that you guys are about to start teaching um, frame speaking Shakespeare in a really profound, I think, and urgent and important way. So I'm thrilled that you guys are here to tell me all about it. Well, I'm thrilled to be here as well. I'm super happy to be here. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast number 714, That Shakespeare Voice. Shakespeare Voice, you know, where you're supposed to sound like a rich white jerk at a funeral, didn't happen by accident. That Shakespeare voice was and is white fear of the black and the immigrant made manifest in speech. It also has nothing to do with how Shakespeare intended his work to be presented. This is how Samuel Taylor and Jasmine Bracey from the Backroom Shakespeare Project describe the online voice classes they're teaching this month. And I thought it was such a powerful and important way of framing this issue of who gets to decide how Shakespeare is spoken that I invited them onto the podcast to tell me more about it. And I'm so thrilled we were able to make it work. Jasmine Bracey started our conversation by answering my question about whether they would be teaching their online students new habits or breaking them of old ones. I think it depends on the person. There are a lot of people who have had training, like I have had training in Edith Skinner. So Mid-Atlantic was the standard for my particular training. And it's relatively new that we're looking at speech and not trying to police people on expectations of sound and um, just allowing people to have voice training and speech training and what it actually means to speak correctly. Who created this correct speech that's acceptable for theater and where the line of expectation and clarity, like it, those lines get blurred. So it's, it's more about looking at people who have had some training and believe that there is a correct way to speak, um, which who created that? Where did that come from? We need to evaluate that because uh, just because I speak two different languages, sometimes I say things and I, I, oh my God, for me, the word umbrella, umbrella, I never know where to put the emphasis there. Yeah. It's on the A, Chesley. Umbrella. It's umbrella. <laughs> umbrella. But I never, there's certain words that because, especially I grew up bilingual, I grew up saying words incorrectly all the time and was constantly criticized for it. Um, and to the point where my teachers would tell my mom, she needs to speak one language at home because she's confusing people and confusing herself and others in the classroom. That's like, well, who the hell made you queen? Like, let me be bilingual. And if you're confused, ask me questions and I'll try and figure out how to make myself. It's more about making myself clear instead of being policed into a behavior. Well, um, and this feels absolutely like an extension of Backroom Shakes' work, which is which tries to break down all those things that we do only because we think that's the way they're supposed to be done. Yeah, you know, I've I, I'm I've never thought about speech in the way that you're talking about it, 
And so that's why I'm loving having this conversation. But I have thought about pronunciation and punctuation, which are things that Shakespeareans cling to as you've got to do it the right way or observe this comma or this semicolon or this line break. And I go, no, stop, shut up. We don't know how it was typeset. We don't know anything, you know, we don't have any manuscripts to check it with. So I love the extension of all of this, of what you're saying. And it also, what you're saying, it opens it up to people who are, for whom English is maybe not their first language or it's their additional second language. Yeah, some of the best Shakespeare I've seen are by non-native speakers, or some of the best theater I've seen are by people who I don't even understand what's being said on stage, but I'm having an experience of what's occurring. And people with a gift in more than one language, and even young, and even children who are learning any language, come to Shakespeare with an appreciation for the fun of his language. And for the fun to be taken away by rules seems so unnecessary. Yeah, no, Shakespeare's jazz. It's jazz. You, you, you need to know the melody, sure. It's nice to know the rhetoric. It's nice to know uh, certain rules, but he even broke his own rules. So it, it, everything is fair game and what we cling to are experiences. And if the rules are hampering or, or creating some sort of disconnect between the experience of the audience and what's being done, then the rules no longer serve and need to be looked at. Again, to me, all all parts of this conversation are sort of related in a way. In that, like, there's a correct way to speak. To speak, there's a correct way to read Shakespeare. There's a correct way to look at their punctuation. There's a correct way to do this. A correct way to do that. All of which I think is like we get because there's a history of a couple of hundred years of like academia and Shakespeare as a sort of white colonialist project of like this is the best culture in the world to deal with it. Um, there's, there's a lot of baggage that, that's attached to Shakespeare and a lot of it has to do with like asserting the dominance of a certain culture. Um, and the way that works is that everything, if, in order for that to be an effective sort of <laughs> instrument and system, everything has to come from a source, right? So the idea is basically that Shakespeare was the perfect writer and he wrote everything perfectly and you have to do it perfectly. And the perfect way to do it can be known and described. And it turns out that the perfect way to speak Shakespeare is to sound really white. That's just like a little detail that you have to get on board with for this whole project of you becoming perfect, right? Just like, first of all, you and your details. Second of all, um, that is a madness of a way to approach a playwright who never anticipated his, his works would be published. The plays happened in a chaotic, weird little playhouse. So this whole, this whole notion that people are talking about, about how these are the rules of Shakespeare's speech. This is the this, this is the that. This is how, this is how a semicolon should be approached. This is what a verse line ending is. Like, I've got news for you. The actors were low-life goons and they owned the plays. And they spoke those things however the hell they wanted to. They had their own very sort of like historical rigid system of pronunciation and all that stuff. But guess who owned that system and guess who taught that system? It was the actors. It certainly was not sort of coming in from a, a linguist school. Um, so to bring it back around, the, the, the sort of authoritarian nature of like how actors learn to speak Shakespeare. You were, we're, Jasmine, you were saying who taught that and maybe it's time we should evaluate that. So just for a little bit of historical context to the listener, um, it was a dialect that came to the theater by way of a woman named Edith Skinner. And Edith Skinner taught 
at a time when, when voice and speech training was becoming important to the American theater. This coincided with the sort of regional theater movement and a lot of theaters opening up all over the country performing Shakespeare. Um, so she taught a really influential generation of voice and text people. So where did she come from? She was a part of this linguist circle um, that belonged to, that were espousing the speech called uh, World Standard English, it was at one time called. She wound up calling it Good American Speech. This is a dialect that no one spoke that was supposed to create a brand new American beautiful set of sounds. Her teacher was an Australian guy named William Tilly who hated the theater. Um, a lot of the other people that he taught in his circle had absolutely nothing to do with the theater. They were all about public speech and oration. And a lot of what motivated them was this new wave of immigrants that was not the right kind of immigrant. They were the wrong kind of European. Um, a lot of black people were coming up north and there was a huge fear about like, what does America even sound like anymore? It's all going to the dogs. And that was in the sort of 20s and 30s, right? So in a lot of ways, the weird, the weird way of speaking that we got, that we inherited in the theater, which to be fair to Edith Skinner, replaced people just speaking in straight up British dialects in Shakespeare. Um, the weird way that we got into that has its roots in like straight up eugenics. Um, and they don't teach that <laughs> in theater schools. They, you mean teach they, don't, teach, they don't teach eugenics or they don't teach that connection? Yeah, they don't teach, they don't oh. te like they teach you to say yeah. the Duke and not the Duke, but they don't tell you why to use a liquid you. They don't tell you the history about why to do that. And it's not trivial. It's, I think it's very important in the sort of, in the microcosm of the theater, how we sound as actors and who is welcome based on who, what sounds are on stage is of enormous importance. It's often said that you, you can't be what you can't see. This is one reason why representation on stage matters. I think another key thing there is you can't be what you can't hear. Within especially black, brown and POC bodies of this assimilation of this is the sound, this is the standard. And so if we don't sound like that, we can't play. And that's a huge thing of people just not being authentic. Like, when I want to be a queen, I have an idea of what the queen sounds like, but she doesn't necessarily sound like somebody from the South Side in my brain because I've been conditioned by insert uh, influential uh, factors here, you know? And it's like, wait, why can't I question that? Why? There are plenty of queens on the South Side of Chicago and they could absolutely play Queen Elizabeth and Shakespeare in Love, which I just played a, a year ago or so. And it was one of those, okay, I have to sound British, but I mean, how, how can I sound and still be authentic to myself and reconcile this image of a queen that I never created and also who I am as a black person playing this queen. Um, and those are and some factors are that white people don't have to factor in when they play things like that. But uh, it's definitely something that needs to be thought of in terms of who set the standard for theater. 
It's yeah, interesting, it, it, though. Like, as a white person who went through a lot of the very same training that Jasmine did, um, as we discover, there's a lot of pedagogical overlap. Um, I also found it strange and limiting. Um, I the, the same kind of damage is not done to me, um, but I also I also remember really distinctly. I had the word night in a monologue, as in like lack of day, night, right? And I was saying night. And I was told to say night with a broader, more open vowel, night. Not night, but night. And I said, but I don't say night. I don't say night, I say night. And my voice teacher said, you do now. <laughs> and then later I learned, later I read that the first thing that Edith Skinner did um, in a lot of her classes that she taught was she would have everyone in the room go around and say their name. And then she would correct you on the pronunciation of your own name. I remember that story. <laughs> oh my God. I cannot think of a more personally invasive way of telling someone that like, you don't belong here. And you're wrong. So it's- How many, how many times do I need to apologize for calling you Sam? <laughs> is it Samuel or is it Samuel? Oh my God! What is the word? That's so well, and what you're saying is you it's know, bullshit. I, it, they're pissing on our legs and they're talking about the rain, and it's gotta stop. And here's the thing that makes me really angry: is that like we as actors get put in the position of enforcing this, right? Like if you don't have the right voice, you can't audition for the part. If you don't get the part, you can't be on stage for it, right? So like then they are putting you in a position of like, okay, go on stage and now you're complicit. Like now you got to talk like this and now you're a part of holding this whole system up. So it's, it makes me just extremely angry, <laughs> obviously. But so one of the things that I think Backroom has been, we've been talking about for a long time is this relationship between how people speak and, and what it means to be on stage and how that is received. We often talk about authenticity, about like speaking with your own actual voice, getting rid of Shakespeare voice. I feel grateful that the, that the moment has changed and that we were able to talk a lot more explicitly and directly about the relationship between racism and that kind of voice. That I think would have been a conversation that had we been really direct about earlier, would have been good. I think, I think people would have found it more surprising uh, then. And I, I wonder, I don't know, I wonder if we could go back and just be really direct about that, um, what that would have been like. I think as a very white sort of institution, as we first got our start, we were reluctant to take on that kind of a conversation. So I'm really grateful that we're at a point where white theater makers like me are sort of being, being put into a position where it's like, no, you talk about it. You gotta talk about it now. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm grateful that my anger about that has a place to go and that there are people who are helping me to try to be useful with that anger. Hi, this is Brian Gallivan, a.k.a. The Sassy Gay Friend. What, what, what are you doing? You're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast.
Where can you RSC the RSC? Right now, the only place to see the remote Shakespeare Company is online. We've created a brand new page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, and a playlist on our YouTube page where right this second you can watch us perform many of our epic abridgments from the comfort of your own shelter. Plus some brand new videos we recorded and shot especially for right now, including our online performance as the remote Shakespeare Company for our friends at the Reston Center Stage in Reston, Virginia, and the almost two-hour video Q&A that Reed and I conducted on Facebook and our reduced reunion of over 50 RSE actors, stage managers, and wardrobe goddesses from at least four different time zones. Go to our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, or our YouTube page, YouTube.com slash user slash ReducedShakespeareCo, and click on the Co-Videos playlist. You can grab your own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. And now back to my conversation with Jasmine Bracey and Samuel Taylor of the Backroom Shakespeare Project, talking about the online class they're teaching the next two Mondays called Spitting Out the Shakespeare Voice. All of this is so antithetical to the spirit, and I think, in which the plays were created, but also the spirit in which actors need to work. I mean, as a director, I'm always looking to have an actor bring who whatever that actor has of themselves to the role. You know, I'm less interested in putting on a mask or putting on a character or putting on a voice. For me, it's less about, you know, I've heard that voice because of my own bubble and my my own privilege. I hear that voice that you guys are talking about. I go, shut up. You, to me, you sound like actors. And I don't want actors. I want people on stage, you know, on all kinds of people. That's who I want to see. I don't want to see this sort of museum thing. And I like that you guys are calling attention to the even worse aspects to all of this than I've been aware of. But what's also interesting is when you when you said what you just said, I'm there's there's two different kind of well there's more than two, but I'm just gonna broad stroke this with there's two camps um, with actors. There are actors who are very interested in the transformation. I personally uh, I love putting on masks. I love creating something that's not always myself usually something other than myself in order to serve a story. Um, and sometimes that does have me adjusting my speech, adjusting my language. Um, but there is also a way to find an authenticity in that. Um, and I think so much with the way that speech gets policed through the Edith Skinner School, um, or even just any theater school, because even if you have speech impediments, that gets policed a lot because teachers want you to have options. So if you have a lisp, it's like, let's get rid of that lisp. So that way, if you wanna have a character with a lisp, you can do it, but you also have the option of not having it. And it's like, wait a minute, who says that the ear can't adjust to somebody's lisp? Like, we, the, we, we forget that the audience is adaptable. The audience will get used to something, exactly how they have to enter the first scene of a Shakespeare play. That first scene, you're listening to what sounds like a foreign language for a little bit until you adjust to, this is English, it's just in a different way that I'm accustomed to receiving English. And they adapt. We forget that the audience is adaptable. But you have these actors who can be authentic um, in creating something 
other, like create a structure for themselves of a character and then live freely within it without necessarily having to be themselves, but a facet of themselves. Uh, I, I have a acting coach that I love, love and adore who always said that actors are like diamonds and your character is basically a light that you shine on a facet of a diamond. It's still a part of you. It's still something you could be because you as a human being are adaptable, but you're just shining a light on just one facet of the diamond, not the diamond as a whole. And I think that right. that applies with speech as well in terms of I can speak what some people uh, in their racist connotations will say is articulate, um, that to some other people are like, you sound bougie as hell. And, but I can also speak like, girl, you better get your life because I'm not going to fix it for you. Like I can, I can move and code shift uh, because my life has asked me to do that. Um, but it's asking the question of when do we want to assimilate or when, assimilate, when you are assimilating, being aware that you're doing so and the image that that is uh, kind of casting on people who are watching and being responsible for that image, but also being able to be authentic within any image you cast on stage. And authenticity of using your own voice, of using your own speech, or using a speech that you create that is another part of you. Because I could speak Spanish all of a sudden while I'm doing Shakespeare. We did that once with Shakespeare in the Parks. Um, there was a Spanish-speaking Hermia. And there was one point where Hermia gets really, really mad. And so she just goes straight into Spanish. And it's just one of those like, oh my God, this is completely amazing and authentic. And it's nothing that's part of the text, but it's completely authentic to uh, Lillian who was playing the role. Um, I, 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 when it comes to speech and authenticity, I think it's about being able to live freely within it. Cause we can hear when something is put on, we can hear what the inauthenticity of something and the audience responds to that. And then that's when they go into that analytical mind of, oh, okay, now I'm standing outside of the thing, watching it from afar because they're putting on this thing that has nothing to do with the play, has nothing to do with who they are. This isn't a choice. This is, this is assimilation and I can feel it. I can feel that it's not true. I'm yeah, super not opposed to silly voices or like vocal masks being put yeah. on. Super yeah. not opposed to that. What yeah. I'm opposed to is the sort of blanket taking something for normal mm -hmm. that is in fact the fruit of a poison tree. A foundation, yeah. And I wasn't saying that, that. I just wanted to make that yeah. distinction of, you know, I do use, I, I, I can use Mid-Atlantic, but I know I'm using Mid-Atlantic and I'm, just knowing that it's a choice and not a standard that I'm adhering to if I oh, ever man. do. Oh, <laughs> man. I never will use it again if yeah. I can help it. And yeah. the reason, for me, the reason why there is that, like, no person, that that was never any person's native way of speaking. No. Like, but that's what so I mean. It's not authentic in any way. Yeah, but people it's often... But so, inauthentic people. So I, I always thought that... Character, I always thought that Mid-Atlantic meant like Connecticut, maybe like somewhere like <laughs> middle of, of the Atlantic seaboard. Um, and in fact, a lot of the sounds in the supposed Mid-Atlantic dialect come from like New England. It, mm -hmm. But the other half of the sounds come from London. Yep. Mid-Atlantic literally meant when they named it in the middle of the fire trucking Atlantic. Where like, no one lives. 
Yeah, that's Iceland, people. <laughs> so if you want to have an Icelandic kind of a situation going on, that's a whole other conversation. But like, there's not a Neverland that out there where people talk like Catherine Hepburn. There just isn't. <laughs> so did for me, did Shakespeare write a lost play about Atlantis? I mean, maybe that's where it came from. I don't know. I don't story. know, but maybe. that might be a fun book idea. <laughs> the, okay, now I'm now I'm on board. The only characters I can think of, ironically, that had that you could make a like text based argument for would be uh, maybe Ariel and Caliban being in the middle of the Atlantic based on the kind of historical record about the kinds of things that Shakespeare was reading when he wrote The Tempest for all sorts of other kinds of cultural reasons that have to do with sort of colonialism and race relations. That would be a very novel choice. Um, but everyone else, I won't. I just won't. I'll be happy to do as authentic a New England dialect as I can. I'll be happy to do Maine. I'll be happy to do Boston or New York. I'll be happy to do several different kinds of New York. But the mid-Atlantic dialect in particular, I just can't. I just won't her again. And one of the things I will say to that, and this isn't necessarily me being contrary, but it's also always interesting. I find when when I see an actual character phase shift within or code switch within a play. So mm -hmm. for me, being a black woman, if I'm doing a play where I'm playing someone who you see in court, but then you also see in a tavern or somewhere, you know, it's like being able to put on this kind of the speech when I'm in court versus the speech when I'm with my people plotting and trying to, um, you know, take over something and being able to kind of phase code switch that dialect of being able to use this kind of falseness because when I'm in court, I'm not authentically who I am, but then having a voice of, this is actually who I am when I'm here, um, is always something I, I love to look for and do just when I do, because it's just part of how I live my life. So, um, but using aspects of mid-Atlantic, like I will never say strawberry or use the I on the end of strawberry. strawberry. Like that, that strawberry. will never, oh God, I will never, <laughs> ever, ever, ever say that. Um, but, you know, there's times when using the word duke, like LeBeau being the most pretentious uh, asswipe in <laughs> As You Like It, using a liquid U for him, sometimes it might be like, oh, God, who is this person? You, you get an immediate hit on somebody who uses a liquid U. It's like, oh, God, I can't with you. I don't like you at all. <laughs> so, yeah. I um, definitely uh, played the duke in Merchant of Venice for Backroom Shakes. But then I also did this outrageous um, Inigo Montoya Spanish <laughs> accent for uh, the Prince of Aragon. Nice. Um, uh, uh, yeah, and that's silly. I, I love what you're saying because and it strikes at the heart of a theater for me, you know, which mm -hmm. is that it's pretend, yes, but it needs to be authentic and true also. Yeah. You know, and that's well, one of the- Well, you have to it, let people in. Yeah. Both you performers and audience. In. Yeah, and letting me, people in, it starts with authenticity. Yeah. And there's nothing about the way that Skinner created her system that's authentic. And for me, that's particularly important with Shakespeare because of the way that Shakespeare is venerated in, in Western culture, you know? Because if, if you know, there's, I think there's a, a strong case to be made that Shakespeare takes up entirely too much air out of the sort of funding system of the theater. Um, but I think when it is done, I think it is important that it be done in a way 
that does not feed these old racist and classist ideas. And one of the ways it does that um, is by how we sound. And we have an opportunity as actors, every time we speak, we have an opportunity to play into that or not to. And it's not, the trouble is that the two kinds of training got intermixed at some point. The trouble is that they all got mixed up together because it is complex text. It is hard to do. It takes a long time to, to really learn how to be good at it. Um, and if we can have a world in which we are teaching people how to do that in a way that also sounds like a country that we want to live in, um, I think we'll be in great shape. If we can get rid of all the extra baggage of this weird theatrical convention and history, but retain the real discipline that it takes to be able to give a speech that is one thought with 13 parentheticals by the time you get to the end of it. You know what I mean? Like, that's not easy. No. <laughs> it's not easy to deliver in such a way that an audience can follow you. Um, but if Shakespeare is the great playwright of the English speaking Western canon, it's especially important how we speak Shakespeare. And it's, it's absolutely vital that instead of focusing on words and sounds in terms of being having those things be policed that it's more about the experience of words because i also think back to i saw um a measure for measure at the globe in 2005 that there are so many words that are in shakespeare that are used that i have no idea what they mean and i still don't know what they mean because i'm not going to go back and look it up but it was like concupiscible or something edward hogg it was a man playing isabella and it was like concupiscible intemperate lust I think was the the phrase I have no idea what concupiscible means but I had I sure as had an experience of that word when Edward said it because of the use and the expression and the authenticity and all of the being that was contained as the expression of that phrase was given I rem it was seared into my theater watching soul <laughs> And so it's not about necessarily being clear in terms of, I'm going to give you all of this information, but it's more about, I'm going to give you an experience of this language that takes you somewhere else so that way you can actually look at your reflection in the mirror that we're holding up instead of us telling you what the reflection of, that you're supposed to see in the mirror is. We're supposed to hold up the mirror to nature. We're not supposed to tell you what to see in it. And I think in terms of giving experiences of words, that is where that is where that experience lies. It's not in communicating uh, specifically correctly. Uh, it's about giving an experience, and that experience lies in the use and authenticity of it. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. You can sign up for Jasmine Bracey's and Samuel Taylor's online class by going to vagabondclasses.card, C-A-R-R-D dot co. That's vagabondclasses.card with two R's dot co. Clicking on the theater button, then clicking on Backroom Shakespeare series, spitting out the Shakespeare voice. The classes will be held the next two Mondays, the last two Mondays of August 2020. And if you're too late or the class is filled, leave them a message and hopefully they'll schedule another. 
another one. Then send us your authentic Shakespeare voice via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSC Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Jasmine Bracey on Instagram at Jazz underscore Bracey. That's J-A-S underscore Bracey. And you can follow Samuel Taylor and the Backroom Shakespeare Project on Instagram, too, at Backroom Shakes. Thanks, as always, to drowning mid-Atlantean Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, and music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Christian Gould. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Brian Gallivan, a.k.a. the sassy gay friend who has his own authentic ways of interpreting and speaking Shakespeare's voice. You can find his videos on YouTube. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, stay home, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 714 to 1,040 seconds of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. I was in a theater class in Albuquerque, um, and the teacher was talking to these young students, and they were talking about the importance of medial T's, like saying kitten instead of kitten, or little little instead of little, right? Oh. They're talking about how every sound is important uh, and in a text-based theater. And the way she was talking, she cared so much about it. And she was telling these kids, the medial T's are important. They are important. <laughs> and, I was, and I was the TA and I like, we got done. And afterwards I was like, you do, did you know you were saying important? She was like, yeah. I was like, you know, there's a medial T in that word, importance. It didn't really translate to her in the way that it translated to me. But she, man, she was using that glottal stop. Important. I was going to say, it reminds me of the word comfortable. I've never said comfortable. I always say comfortable. Because yeah, it Edith makes me Skinner comfortable to... to say comfortable. It's really comfortable to take out that fourth syllable. Yeah. But then all of a sudden I have to work to say the word comfortable because there's apparently four syllables in it. Yeah. That's not comfortable. Only if you're talking about a specific comfort table. That's, <laughs> that's a completely different thing. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.